Mark Rubbo. I'm Managing Director of Readings, which is a, a small independent chain of bookshops in Melbourne, Australia. And this is our Readings Conversations, and it's a, a series where I talk to people that I like in the publishing and writing game, and people I find interesting. And I hope that you'll find our conversations interesting too. Uh, well, today we're here on the inaugural Readings podcast, and I'm speaking to my old friend, Henry Rosenblum, who's the founder and publisher of Scribe Publishing, which is a fantastic independent press based in Melbourne, in Brunswick, not very far from where we are at the moment, at the Kathleen Syme Centre, uh, run by the Melbourne City Council. Now, Henry, let's start. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me a bit about yourself and your background, and then how you got into publishing. Okay, well, it's a question of where you want to start. Um, Probably a a really important part of my background, which I've become more aware of, I suppose, as I've got older, is is my parents' story. Uh, Because Mm. my parents uh, were Polish Jews, born in Lodge or Wuj, depending on your pronunciation, and they were both Holocaust survivors. My my mother, who's still alive, uh, was literally a Holocaust survivor. She survived the last 17 months of Auschwitz, and she was on a death march out of the camp uh, at the end of the the camp's existence. And she'd previously survived the Lodge ghetto. She'd been a a forced labourer in Germany and so on. So she'd had a horrendous war, Mm. and my father had escaped eastwards to Russia, and he'd endured the war doing forced labour all around Russia. In Russia. In Russia, that's right. And they came, they'd known each other, they'd lived in the same street oh, right. before the war. Um, my mother had been very good friends with one of Dad's sisters, but I don't think had been particularly interested in him. Mm. But after the war, they'd, they'd both lost nearly all of their families, and they came together like a lot of people did in those circumstances, found each other, and um, whether it was love, um, mm. desperation, companionship, mm. you know, how would you know? But they certainly came together very quickly, and... Um, Married? Did they find each other accidentally? After? No, they it were looking be, for each must other. Must have been chaotic. After yeah, the war. there were bulletin boards, a bit like oh, right. the old readings bulletin <laughs> board. Right. Literally, yeah. you know, people would just stick up notices. Saying, do you has know, anybody so? heard of? In this case, um, Dad was inquiring about Mum. Uh, has anybody heard of Fella ah. uh, Perelman? Mm. Um, and you know, they did discover each other, and um, then. Um, they married, they were in a, what's called a DP camp, a displaced persons camp in mm. Germany. Mum fell pregnant with me. She apparently determined that she was not going to have a child of hers born in Germany for perfectly understandable <laughs> reasons. And Dad got a job offer at a Yiddish language newspaper in Paris oh. and took it. And that's why I was born in Paris uh, after the war. And they had the happiest years of their life, they often told me. <laughs> In Paris, and and would have stayed there forever, but the uh, Korean War started, mm. and they were terrified that the atomic bomb was going to be used, and they wanted to get as far away from Europe as they could to a place that was still civilized. And that's a phrase I heard many times when I was growing up, amongst their kind of generation. Mm. A lot of people fled to Canada, some fled to Australia. There was a Polish Jewish community in Melbourne, so that's where they came. Now that's a very long-winded explanation, mm. but what I trying to get at in a shorthand version is I obviously grew up with a very strong sense of the terrors of the Holocaust and the the enormous pain my family had been through. 
Um, I was drawn to writing and editing as a young boy. Uh, at high school, I wrote for the school mm. magazine. I edited the school magazine. When I went to university, I wrote for Farago and I became his first full-time editor. I remember that. You remember yeah. that? Yeah. I co-edited Melbourne University magazine with Arnold Zabel. So I was very drawn to, to all of those kinds of activities, to, as I say, to writing and editing. I had no plans or thoughts of being a publisher at that stage. But then I worked um, freelance for Nation Review as a journalist uh, for a year or two in uh, 72. And I got a job in the Whitlam government working for Moss Cass. Mm -hmm. Uh, he was the first minister for the environment, and that. And what position was that? I, uh, I was a initially I was a kind of private secretary, which was oh, a right. fairly administrative job. I was the worst private secretary in the history <laughs> of the government. I think um, that's not the job I wanted. But um, I and Peter Blasey we were both friends at that stage. Applied mm. for the same job, and Moss exercised the wisdom of Solomon, and he split the job in half, and he gave Peter Press and me private, and. Eventually, uh, I became press secretary. Peter left, was kicked out, whatever happened. Right. Uh, went to one party too many, I think, something <laughs> like that. And, um, and then I stayed with Moss when he became Minister for the Media. But what I was trying to say was my experience of working in the government, apart from lots of things you could say about it, was it, it really um, made me highly aware of how important it was to do stuff in the national interest, in the public interest, um, as a... As a reader and as a writer, I was very interested in uh, getting to grips with how the world actually was, and that goes back to my background as well. Mm. So I, I dreamt up the idea of Scribe um, in the mid-70s uh, while I was still working for the Whitlam government. Oh, right. I didn't know what I would do, but I, I, I wrote down... An idea of a publishing company. A publishing company. And did and you I, name it Scribe? I named it Scribe, yeah, <laughs> right. and I'm quite pleased with that now. Right. Um, I mean, at the time, how would I know? But I think it's a good name. And um, Very good. I wrote down serious nonfiction, which was yeah. a phrase that wasn't used in Australian publishing at the time. People used to look at me blankly when I said that. But I wrote down a kind of books I wanted to publish, and we actually did publish a number of them later on. But it certainly was not, was not a conscious thing. Um, the only thing that I would say is that the background that I've described made me determined to if it was going to work at all, to create a publishing house that focused on books that mattered, books of intrinsic significance and importance. I always wanted them to be well written, but I just thought that that was the only kind of book that I could do or, or should do. Right. And um, your father owned a printing business, didn't he? He and, did. And, you're, um, you're very well informed, Mark. And uh, so did that... You yeah. used the printing business yeah. as a vehicle, That's, didn't you? Yeah. The first... yeah, it's part of the story. Yeah. Um, because what happened was when I lost my job in the Whitlam government on the 11th of November, <laughs> oh, right. you were dismissed, were you? <laughs> I was dismissed. Yeah. Uh, my father had previously asked me many times over the years whether I wanted to join the family printing business. And I'd always very rudely said, no, go away. I'm a literary intellectual. Right. You know, I'm not interested <laughs> in business or printing or anything sorted like that. I didn't actually use those words, but that was no. really my attitude. <laughs> um, but anyway, he came to me and he said, look, Henry, this is the last time I'm going to ask you. Um, if you don't want to come in, I've had enough. I'm going to sell it. So I had to think about that seriously mm. at that point. That was a kind of acid test. And I thought, I really can't turn my back on it. I have to try it. I have to find out what I can do with this thing. 
to put it in a slightly highfalutin way, I thought a printing company is a communications medium, really, mm. and I'd like to see what I can do. So the agreement, the initial agreement with my father was I would take it on if I was good at it and was happy in it, I would take it over um, within you know two years. In the end, I gave Dad six two-year extensions. I actually right. became managing director about two years later, and I, I ran the company for the further 10 years. Mm. But even before the two years was up, I asked my father, could I, could I turn it into a book printing company? Because I was totally uninterested in commercial printing, even mm. though it was very profitable. Yes, I remember that. I think you did some invoices books we, for us. <laughs> we did all sorts of things, Mark. We did invoices. We did posters at university. Right. Level. We were famous for our posters, oh, our political yeah, yeah. posters. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so my father, to his great credit, said, of course you can, as long as it'll still be profitable. And I, I told him I thought it would be. And in fact, that turned out to be the case. So what happened was I'd already um, registered Scribe as a company. And w- while I was in Globe Press, as, as it was called, mm. uh, between 76 and 88, we would publish a book or two a year under Scribe's yeah. imprint. I didn't have the brain cells or the energy to do more than that because it was very hard work building up the printing mm. company. And some of the books we did are still in print, uh, you know, right, today. Yeah. In, in 1980, I remember still, we published three books. Uh, one of them was Buckley's Hope by Craig Robertson, right. which is still in yes. print. And the other one was Come Spring by Maria Lewitt, which was the first work of Holocaust literature in Australia, which we right. published and is still in print. It's, yeah. And we did um, a collection of Jack Hibbard's plays called Three Popular Plays, which had fallen out of print that Outback had published, and right. so on and so forth. We published Lily Brett's first work, a collection of poetry, which won a Victorian Premier's Award, right? Mm, So I thought, well, the judgment's not terrible. I just don't have much energy um, uh, to do more. And uh, eventually we sold that that printing business in Easter 88. And I was a bit of a burned out case. Uh, My wife uh, and I had two young children. Mm. I was sick of the inner city, sick of the noise and the, the mayhem and the grit and the grime. And um, strangely enough, as an urban Jew, I thought, <laughs> I want to get out to the country. Why so, not? <laughs> so we had a look and we settled on a place near Hanging Rock. Mm. And that's where we lived for eight years. Right, that long. From, mm. from early 89 to early 97. Mm. Um, and I became a gentleman publisher in the country, <laughs> um, still only publishing a small number of books right. a year. So you were, effectively, that was what you were doing. Farming and uh, I was, <laughs> and and doing the odd book or two. I was remarkably good. My wife tells me at rounding up cows and sheep. Really? Yeah. Although I, can't I, I that. <laughs> although I mistook beehives for filing cabinets, which <laughs> I've been ragged about ever since. Um, tell me just, uh, how did you distribute the books that you published? I mean, I'm interested. Very in badly. Right. Uh, I mean, like all small publishers in those mm. days, you know, you, you you took what you could get, and we went through a variety of different. Uh, distributors. Mm. Uh, we had Tower Books. You remember? All oh, right. That yes, original in, company yes, in Sydney. Yeah. yeah. And then a bit later, we we're with Australian Book Group. Right. right. Uh, based in Gippsland. Mm. Um, um, eventually, when we got a bit bigger and more significant, I suppose, mm. uh, producing more books, uh, we were with Macmillan. Yeah. And you know, and since then, with Penguin and now Penguin Random, Random House. Yeah. So tell me, when when did you decide? become serious about ah, it because your question. scribe is now in my opinion mm. one of the great australian publishers thanks mark it's very nice of you mm. 
Look, I, I, I actually know when I decided to become serious about it. Um, it was when we came back from the country. Mm. It was early 97, as I said, and we came back for a number of reasons, some personal, mostly personal, uh, uh, and there was also a kind of business side of it because I realised that Scribe was becoming moribund in the country. I, I, I could tell from our own experience that unlike England and America, you could not run uh, a publishing house of any note outside a major metropolitan centre. It was just impossible. Well, why? Well, I you mean, just presumably email had started by then, hadn't it? Uh, um, I don't know about email. Oh, right. I was, it was only fax machines. Oh, at that right, stage. so there you was, just felt you were yeah, too cut off from... Too cut off. You didn't see authors. You didn't see right. agents. You're just too out of part of the swim. network, right? That's yeah. right. Yeah. And I, that just became clearer and clearer right. to me. Um, so early 97, I thought, you know, I was then in my 50s, um, in fact, it just turned 50. Yeah. And I thought, I don't know how many years I'm going to have of intellectual power or energy. This is the last chance I'm going to have to find out if I can be the publisher. I think I am, but hardly anyone. We're almost 20 years it. later. <laughs> That's right. So I thought, I really want to give this a go properly. And it took a little while to work out how to do it and where to do it. I first set up um, in our front room in our house, and then we rented our first office space. Um, in Rathdown Street, mm. and we were there for some time. Uh, we were even there famously when Mick Gatto shot um, <laughs> that guy. Yes. But that's another I, story. No. <laughs> I remember the lovely story you used to tell me how Mick Gatto used to ask you to move your car so he could get, yeah, that was get his car down the lane. That was amazing. Mick, I'd always see Mick in the, in the sort of laneway near our office talking out of the side of his mouth to some strange bloke and there seemed to be wads of money changing hands and you never really knew what was going on. Um, one of the other things, because I remember talking to you about uh, when you start, decided to take it seriously and one of the things you just started to do was to buy rights to yeah. to international books, which a lot of publishers have dabbled in, but um, you did it. With a bit of a vengeance, if I may well, say so. Well, funnily, funnily, funnily enough, Mark, this is a bit amazing, but you were instrumental in that because oh. I remember very clearly it was May 1999 and you tipped me off about an American book. It was a combination of marriage guidance and sex therapy. And I didn't know at the time, but that was the holy grail. No one had been able to pull that off, apparently, to do that successfully. The author was David Snarsh. The book was Passionate Marriage. And you said, Henry, it's a very good book. He's coming to Australia. You should try to acquire the rights. And, you know, you're talking a language I'd hardly heard of before. <laughs> but I'm a quick study, as they say, in America. And I had a strong production background, obviously. So I not only acquired the rights, but I managed to print the book in time for the guy to turn up in the country. And we sold a lot of copies for a small publisher. We sold, I think, 5,000 copies in the mm -hmm. first two or three months. We sold 10,000 10, copies in the first six months. And all of a sudden, a light went on in my head, and I thought, hello, I can buy rights, and the books can sell in decent numbers, and um, it's a very good way of building a list. And I started doing uh, more and more of that. Right. I bought another American book called Real Boys, which was a very good book, mm. and Real Boys Voices, and I discovered I had a kind of affinity for it. It's a hard thing to do. Mm. But since then, it's become one of the defining characteristics of Scribe. That, you know, we acquire yes. a lot of rights for a small company, mm. for a company our size. Mm particularly from America, but not just America. 
Um, and the other thing we did around the same time, Mark, um, which you may remember, is we acquired a book by uh, an unknown author who'd uh, uh, he'd escaped from Pintridge. He was a I do criminal. remember that book. He was on Tell the run in India <laughs> for, for 10 years or so, and he was serving out his time in Pentridge, and we knew about him through family connections, and he sent us one chapter, and we were knocked over by it, and uh, we met him in St Kilda, not far from your now St Kilda reading store, mm. uh, thinking we would just discuss what further developments might be, and it turned into a, an offer on the spot for a book that became Shantaram. And it was Gregory David Roberts. It was Gregory David Roberts, and we eventually published it in, I think, 2003, mm. um, in hardback, 940-page hardback at 50 bucks, and we did 20,000 hardbacks, and we sold them in one week. That's amazing. It is incredible, isn't it? I remember that launch very well, Henry, because you kindly asked me to sell the book at that launch, and if I remember rightly, it was in a... Rather salacious bar. It was shocking. The women whose eyes you, you could not take your eye off. No, well, they weren't very... They didn't weren't have very, any clothes they on. They covered. No, I know. Um, and I remember um, it was an acquaintance of Greg... It was. Of Greg Roberts, wasn't it? It was. He insisted uh, on that venue. Um, and, you know, it's a sort of highlight, or low light of my career as a publisher. It was just astonishing. Yes, no, uh, speaking of Mick Getter, I remember... Um, at selling the books at the launch, there's men in sort of long overcoats with lots of jewellery with pink pull-out sort of uh, wads of $100 bills. That's right. And so, that's right. Was, I'll have three was, of those, mate. <laughs> it was incredible. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. But anyway, it was around 99, Mark, that we actually started to do it properly, right. as it were. And I was I, from then on, I steadily expanded the number of books. You know, we went from three a year to six to 12 to 18, 24, etc. Mm. Uh, we then had to move... Uh, further, further down the street, as it were, uh, into Carlton at the mm. corner of um, Patterson and uh, sorry, Pat, uh, Lee and Drummond Streets, yes. and um, and you know before too long we were publishing fifty plus books a year, mm. and we've now been doing I suppose somewhere between sixty and seventy for I don't know five or six years, maybe mm. more, again with a very strong. Uh, what, what you might say, foreign component, but increasingly, you know, very good books from Australia, very good books from Europe as well. Mm. And, of course, there's been a more recent development to do with the UK. And um, I notice you've always had very uh, high production quality, mm. and especially in the last four or five years, the, the design and the look and the feel of your books has been mm. often exceptional. Um, Thanks, Mark. Does that come from that's a concerted it's, effort? Or? It's absolutely, uh, yes, intentional, but I can't claim any credit for it personally. Mm. I happen to have uh, a daughter who's our art director, who's right. very gifted, Miriam. She worked at Faber for several years as a senior designer there. She's still very well connected with the UK design scene. Uh, she's now very involved in the Australian Book Design, uh, Book Designers Association. Um, we also employ part-time one of Australia's most gifted cover designers, Alison Colpoise, who keeps winning awards all the time. Uh, we are in touch with extremely talented freelancers who seem to be very happy to work for us. So it's, it's certainly been a very deliberate thing we've done, and it's gratifying that some people notice. I might say we wanted to do it anyway, but with the emergence of e-books, 
we felt one of the really important things that you could do or should do to make printed books uh, desirable was to make them as attractive as possible in design terms and to put in high production values, as it were, to pour them into it. Mm. And I'm certain that that's the right approach or strategy. Well, we would have wanted to do it even without an emergence of e-books, but you know, it's, it just so happens it's the right mm. thing to do. Mm. And um, you said earlier that um, when you were a young man working for Voskass and you mm. scribe formed in your, in your mind, it was going to do serious mm. non-fiction. Yeah. Um, and you've stuck to knitting pretty well, but yes. you're now publishing fiction. Yeah. And you have published a few books which I may dare say are mm. Mm. aimed at a commercial market. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's a very mm. good point. I mean, I, I kept on, I had this uh, very high-minded notion for a long, long time that, you know, we would just produce books which were excellent, very intrinsically significant and important, and they would find their market. And for some time and for, in a lot of cases, that did happen. But, and this might be something we talk about, mm. I don't know, Mark, but as the, as the book trade changed, it became more and more obvious to me that that was not going to work commercially. If, if you just limited yourself to those kinds of books, you would eventually run into serious commercial trouble because the, the ma mass... Mass taste, the mass market does not run in that direction. Um, even though we have published very good books that have sold very well, of course that's true, mm. but there are a lot of very good books, both fiction and non-fiction, that don't sell very well. Mm. And that's our experience, that's our competitors' experience in Australia and America and England and Europe. I know this because I travel internationally all the time. You know, the, the nature of trade publishing is that the market for what you might call literary fiction or literary non-fiction is relatively small most of the time. So I realised worldwide. Do you think I think it's worldwide. Right. Yeah, I mean it, it will fluctuate from country to country. Mm. Uh, some countries hold out better than others, um, but I think that's generally true. And I know a number of what I might call peer companies that are struggling with that fact right now mm. in their own markets and their own countries. Um, so I, I could see this happening and to some extent painfully several years ago because we got hit when there was a bad downturn in the trade. We mm. got hit for a couple of years. And for the first time ever, we lost money. You know, we, we had cash flow problems and it was really painful. Mm. Um, and I realised, you know, if I just kept doing more of the same, it was going to be a one-way street from which there was no exit. Yeah. So I broadened the non-fiction range and I, I deliberately created a kind of popular science popular health category and luckily one of the first ones was a book which became famous a book by a Canadian neuroscientist called Norman Doidge and the book was called The Brain That Changes Itself which we published mm. now quite a long time ago mm. in 2008 but it, it has sold around 200,000 copies in Australia in Australia and it's the biggest selling popular science title, as far as I know, in Australia's history. And that opened my eyes to that sort of category. Yeah. Um, it's a very good book. I don't want to give the wrong impression. No, it's no. very well written. It has to be to work yeah. like that. And I kept thinking, if we can find, it's a bit like the Scribe project, but applied more widely. If we can find very well written books in these kinds of areas, 
I'm sure they will sell, but the trick is finding the right ones and not not sort of compromising, not just mm. going for something that's fetish or something that's just commercially obvious. Mm. And um, just going back a bit, um, you were talking about Miriam involvement, but mm. also you're very you still edit books, don't you? And um, and your wife Margot was yes. very active. In the sure. business too. That's um, right. Yeah, Margot's been very active on and off over the years. She's she's retired like Nellie Marble several times and come back. Right. Um, she she does still edit occasionally uh, on request. She's unpaid, a volunteer right. editor. She's terrific at it. In fact, she edited Shantaram with me yes. all those years ago. She's a wonderful editor, sort of a, a great instinctive editor, I think. Um, and I, yes, you're right. I do edit quite a lot. I even typeset. Quite a bit. I, I, I edit and typeset more than I should, objectively, mm. but I actually love both activities and I can't imagine being an active publisher and not being an editor of some mm. kind. It's a bit like I pack more parcels than I should. Exactly. I'm sure that's right, Mark. <laughs> and, and, you know, maybe we've both got tiny minds. You know, yes. so, I mean, we're both, we're both addicted to detail, mm. aren't we? And we, we yeah. know that detail counts. And in my case, I'm a pedant. Um, and a lover of language used properly, so I want to edit. <laughs> right. Um, I know every book is a favourite, but uh, do you have any um, oh. ones that you're particularly proud of? That's a very good question. Yeah. I've been thinking about this, funnily enough, because um, our company will be 40 years old next year, and I've been thinking Fantastic. about yeah. what, what we will do about yeah. that. And I thought one thing I might do, although it might be invidious, but I might draw up a list of the 40 books I have most, I don't know, enjoyed or valued. Mm. I mean, it's a bit invidious because, you know... I suppose you're saying to the other You're saying books. to all the others, <laughs> I don't care about you as much. But, right. but I think people are used to yeah. lists of various kinds, so it might be okay. Look, if I thought about it, Mark, I, uh, there, there, are, there are a few um, that sort of stand out in my mind. Um, there's an Australian non-fiction book, a memoir, which is very close to my heart. It's a kind of military memoir, funnily enough. All oh, right, yes. It's called Well Done Knows Men yes. by Barry Hurd. That was a very early... Well, yes. Into so, the second iteration of yes, Scribe, part, wasn't yes, it? Yes, yeah. it was part of what you might call the modern mm. era of Scribe. Yeah. Uh, Barry came to me, uh, of all things, at, a, at, a, at the inaugural Norfolk Island Writers' Festival or Literary Festival, whatever oh. it was called. I was due to go up on a stage and give a talk. This strange-looking man came up to me before my talk uh, sort of picked me out with very beady eyes <laughs> and stared and stared at me and said, I think you're a special person. Are you a special person? And I thought, uh-oh, I've got a complete <laughs> nutter here. How do I get out of this? And I said, no, no, I'm just a publisher. You know, I'm just going to give a talk. He said, okay, I might stay and listen to you. So I gave him a talk and he came up to me afterwards and he said, look, I'm a Vietnam vet. Um, I've written a manuscript about my experiences. Would you look at it? And he was obviously in a shocking state. Right. And I read the manuscript, and it was in a shocking state. And he was clearly in terrible sort of psychological trouble, and he was a strange kind of writer because he couldn't punctuate, he couldn't spell, he couldn't construct sentences, but he had a natural storytelling gift, right. and he had a wonderful heart, I thought. So I saw into the, into the soul of this manuscript, and I thought, I can and want to turn this into what it's got the potential to be. And I spent a long time editing it. It really was nightmarish. Um, but it, it became a book which is much loved 
it's sold mm. a lot of copies. I don't know the number now, but it's well mm. over 20,000. Right. It, it actually changed Barry's life. He was, he was emerging from severe post-traumatic stress. Um, he now tours the country. He gives right. talks to schools and yeah. so on. That's a book which has made a big difference to the author and to every reader who's read it. That's a, that's a wonderful story. Isn't I, it? I, yeah. You know, that to me is the scribe project, you know, encapsulated in one book. <laughs> yeah. large. So yeah. I love that. If I'm thinking about nonfiction, I, I, I'm full of admiration and awe, really, for an American book, Behind the Beautiful Forevers by yes, Catherine Boone. Wonderful book. Yeah, wonderful great. book, which we managed to pick up. Um, it won the American National Book Award for nonfiction after we'd published it. Mm. Um, so there are books like that, and there were also books over the years that I thought were very good books that didn't particularly sell, so there's no point going, going into those. With fiction, um, there's some very good, I mean, Shantaram we've talked about, um, there's some terrific novels we've published, Australian novels, Indelible Ink by Fiona McGregor, mm. which is a terrific novel which keeps selling yeah. and selling. Yeah. Chris Wormersley, yes. you know, we found Chris and we've been publishing him mm. for some time. Kate Kennedy. Kate it? Kennedy, I brought Kate into the house too. Mm. Wonderful writer, wonderful person. So, you know, there have been people like that, and they all fit into what I was trying to do, I suppose, mm. in establishing Scribe. But the really amazing thing is, and if I can say this, Mark, in some strange osmotic process, every member of staff I hire seems to share these values. <laughs> and in fact, they sometimes beat me across the head with them. <laughs> you know, sometimes we have discussions about books we're reading and thinking about acquiring. And in my attempt to be a bit more commercial, I've sometimes said, look, why don't we, why don't we publish this say, book? Oh, you can't do that, Henry. Well, there was one recently, you'd know, that Eben Alexander book. It, what was it? It was about uh, a near-death experience and, and visiting heaven. Was it called? Oh, I can't remember. It wasn't called H's for Heaven or something, but anyway. Th this book, and I read it, and I thought, wow, this is a very strange book, but it's amazing. And I'm sure it's going to do extremely well. Yeah. And in fact, it became a huge bestseller everywhere. And I took it to a meeting, and the staff... As one said, Henry, you can't publish this book. It's not a scribe book. So I've got my staff telling me what is and is a scribe book. I almost felt embarrassed. But you know, I, I did say to them, look, it's going to sell. It'd be nice to have the money for a change. But they said, no, you can't do it. And I agreed with them, so we didn't do it. Right. <laughs> um, as you said, scribe's been through a lot of changes, but um, mm. the Australian industry has been publishing industry it's been through a lot of changes yep. too, hasn't it? It has. And yes. What do you feel? Have you? Has it ever been positive changes? Do you think? And Look, it's 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 terribly hard to know, Mark. I mean, I I do think. Uh, I mean, my experience is not a typical experience, so that's why I'm a bit, I'm a bit cautious mm. about mm. generalising. Um, I think it's got tougher, uh, and I also think it's notable how uh, books books sold as a proportion of our population has dropped and dropped and dropped, just as newspaper sales have. Mm. You know, I still remember when I was a book printer in the 70s and when I was publishing a few books in the mm. 70s, it was not at all unusual for a small publisher to publish an initial edition in hardback yeah. and they'd print 3,000 copies, they'd sell that 3,000 copies and then they'd do a paperback of 5,000 right. and sell that. That was absolutely typical. Now, you know, you fast forward. But there are a lot fewer books being published. There are a lot there. fewer books mm. than there are fewer publishers. The population mm. was a lot smaller, mm. much smaller. But you, you fast forward now. You know, if you published a novel 
I was thinking of novels when I was thinking about right, that. Yeah. If you published a novel today in Australia, whether it's taboo or not taboo, but it's li- literary fiction, you'd be beside yourself if you sold 3,000 in total. You'd think mm. that was a huge success. Now, that's, that's not a good look. It's not, it's not a good sign. No, it makes it hard for, for you and most particularly for the author. I mean, it's not an income for an author, is it? No, it's hopeless. Mm. It's really dreadful. Mm. And, and I know that's true across the board. I, mm. You know, I talk to enough publishers to know that that's a fact. Mm. I mean, I think literary fiction is a, is, is, has got a problem in most markets. Mm. But that's an example of what I'm talking about, about the changes. I mean, of course, there's been a rise of e-books. Um, and, you know, they seem to have taken roughly 20% of the market. Right. But um, that coincided in Australia with a serious drop in the physical market. And for some time, the, the rise of e-book sales didn't compensate for the drop of mm. e-book sales. It's now recovered a bit. Yes. But e-books have stalled as a percentage of sales. Mm. Who knows where that's going to end up? I don't know. My, my intuition is that e-books are not going to increase as a proportion from now on, except for particular categories. Uh, where they're right. most suited, they're best suited, mm. you know, like uh, romance, you know, what, what's sometimes called women's fiction. And and why do you think that? I mean, in some ways, e-books, I mean, you can get them instantly. Yeah. Um, well, they're I, uh, they're yeah. generally a bit cheaper than the print yeah. book. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think getting them instantly is a great advantage, but there's only certain kinds of books for which that, that benefit is relevant. I think, and that's books that are either very escapist and they're not the kind of books you'd put on a shelf if they were mm. physically available, or they're information-rich. You know, you, you want them for the information. You want to be able to look them up. You want to, you want to know about something. I, I think myself, the, the reading experience of what you might call serious books or real books in an e-book form is not that satisfying. And I think, despite the efforts of everybody to make it as attractive as possible... Mm. And I, th- I think that that penny has dropped. It's, it's interesting how young people don't seem to read e-books, you know, when market surveys are done. Mm. Older people, funnily enough, as a proportion, read yes, more Yes, no, the them. people I've encountered are usually sort of... Um, 55 plus? Yes, yes. That's yeah, right. So yeah. that's really interesting, mm. and that's counterintuitive. Mm. Uh, and maybe one of the reasons for that is they're happy not having to lug physical books around. I mean, it's obviously yes. fantastic if you're travelling... Um, decent distances, either by car or train or aeroplane, mm. then it's brilliant to have an e-device mm. of some kind and be reading. But I just do think there's been a kind of comeback of the physical object and maybe of the sector that you represent, Mark, of the bookstore, mm. you know, the so-called bricks-and-mortar bookstore. I think people have rediscovered the kind of community uh, that that represents. You know, there's nothing quite like that mm. meeting place where you literally meet friends and sometimes make friends and and you have a kind of warm and fuzzy feeling about the bookshop itself mm. the staff there you know you trust their recommendations and judgments mm. and it feels like um, a significant part of your inner life as it were to go to a good bookshop and i think that's been rediscovered a bit yes that's certainly our, our experience i mean like um you and your we most book retailers experienced a severe downturn in sales over the last you know, last three or four years, mm. and it's only in the last probably year that it started mm. to come back. That's right. Uh, but a lot of shops have closed in Australia and, mm. and worldwide. Mm. Um, 
you know, the collapse of borders and, and Angus Robinson here has been case in point. Mm. Um, and there are a lot of now financial barriers to to bookshops opening and high rents, uh, those kinds of things. I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. No. Certainly the, the existing ones it's anecdotally seem to be doing better and certainly that's our case mm. at the moment. So mm. it's, it's an interesting time. I mean, I happen to echo your mm. <laughs> sentiments that bookshops are wonderful places mm. to discover mm. books and mm. to, to com- you know, meet people, like-minded people. So, mm. um, one of the things that certainly, I, I think, affected our retail sales was the rise of um, the big internet. Yep. Uh, retailers, um, obviously, the most obvious of those is, is Amazon. Um, mm. Mm. Do you think they had an effect on your sales? Yep, yep, they would have for sure. And um, the, because they don't carry Australian books. And, no, yeah. uh, well, they've set up an, an a dot com dot au site for ebooks. Yeah, for ebooks. Mm. Uh, and as you well know, there's always been speculation about Amazon yes. setting up physically in Australia, and you hear rumours every six months mm. or so. Yeah about what they are or aren't going to do. Or their offshoot book depository. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah, book depository out of the UK, which they mm. own. Mm. Um, yeah, I think that certainly had a lot to do with it, particularly when the Australian dollar rose um, mm. and, you know, it was very cheap to bring in books from offshore. Mm. That's a whole other subject, of course. Yeah. Um, but, I, look, I do think it's it's a very tough kind of environment. Um, you know, my my I suppose my overall sense is that Books are probably less valued in the culture today than they were 40 or 50 years ago. I do think that, right? right? And I think that's why, ultimately, you know, to reduce it to a single point, that's ultimately why publishers are struggling and booksellers are struggling. Now, I don't think you can do much about that or Mm. if it's going to change, it's not going to change because of anything you or I do. You know, these are... These are very big sort of secular movements, mm. secular over time, not, yeah. not non-religious. Um, and it's actually partly because of that, Mark, because I've come to that view that I thought of a few years ago that if I, as a, a small independent publisher in Australia, just limited myself to publishing in Australia, I just thought the ultimate story would be one of decline. Mm. I just think the market's too small and we're too dominated by global corporations, publishing companies, right. let alone Amazon. We'd just be at the receiving end of the decisions they make. And this is, because um, we haven't told our listeners no. yet, but the Scribe now has an office in England and uh, mm. quite an active publishing program yeah. over there. So yeah. we're segueing into that, aren't we? That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, well, I, so I, this I, is sort of dri- one of the drivers for that. Yeah. Tell us a bit about that. Okay, well, I, you know, this is something which one way or another had been on my mind for a long time. Um, you know, perhaps a reasonable percentage of people listening to this will, will know about um, the rights problem represented by UK and Commonwealth rights. Uh, people mm. who don't know anything about publishing have to have it explained to them, obviously. But mm. just quickly, you know, historically, um, if American publishers and American agents wanted to sell rights into the UK... Um, UK publishers insisted, as part of that, uh, on acquiring what they call UK and Commonwealth rights. 
and Commonwealth is what used to be called Empire. Yes, and Empire is <laughs> the what pink used bits. <laughs> the pink bits on the globe around the world, mm. right? Uh, so they they adopted a position which was very close to uh, blackmail. They basically said, if you don't offer us UK and Commonwealth rights, we will not offer at all. You won't get a UK deal. Mm. So you know, companies like Scribe would be knocking on the door saying, we'd like ANZ rights, please. And, and they, that is the US publishers and agents, would say, well, we'd love to sell you rights, Henry, but we're very worried about not getting a UK deal if we do that. So over many years, I and some of my peers like Michael Haywood did more and more of this, mm. and we had some successes. We would manage to peel off ANZ rights, but it's a, it's a, been a very frustrating you know, experience, yeah. and I kept on seeing terrific books we couldn't get close to that I thought would be perfect scribe books. And eventually I thought, I'm sick of this, I can't bear it. You know, I hate the fact that these pommy bastards are stopping us from getting good books, and their policy is effectively a kind of neo-colonialist policy and like all colonialism, it's actually stopping the development of an industry within the country that they're colonising. It's very mm. interesting to see. I mean, by doing that, yeah. they prevent Indigenous publishers from picking up um, uh, rights that have an economic value that can buttress their own mm, programs, their yeah. own programs yeah. and their own industry. They actually stop mm. that from happening. And it's not an accident that they mm. do that. Of course, it's very important for the UK publishers to do it for their bottom lines, but that happens to be a consequence mm. of that approach. So I was sick of this, and I thought, okay, the only way to beat these bastards is to join them. It's to become a pommy <laughs> bastard myself, right? right? So it took a lot of time, and it was tricky, but eventually I made the decision, and we, we in fact started publishing in the UK just over two years ago. Yeah, We lost money rapidly uh, for, quite a, you mm. know, for quite a while, right. and that was very painful. In fact, at one stage, as I've said before, I was losing money in two countries yes. simultaneously, right. uh, which is not an experience I'd recommend to anybody. No. But I stuck at it because I believed in what we were doing. And it's turned around very fast. We've got terrific staff. We've got three staff members there, uh, headed by an amazing editor-publisher called Philip Gwynne-Jones, who right. used to be the publisher at Grand Portobello, wonderful publicity manager, wonderful publishing assistant. We get incredible publicity in the UK. And lo and behold... Um, immediately, some of the reasons that I had for doing it came into play. First of all, we started getting access to better quality books. You can't so come you, with rights. So you'd buy. We're buying. You can't come you, with rights. You act like those. Exactly. I'm acting <laughs> multinationals. Like you are a multinational. I am. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a mini multinational. <laughs> yeah. Um, so and we published those books in the UK and Australia. That was the first thing. Then we could also buy rights from Europe. We could buy UK and Commonwealth rights, or sometimes World English rights. Amazing, you could never mm. do that before. Yeah. Yeah. Right? We had access into the UK uh, of good Australian authors that we published. All of a sudden, we could publish them ourselves. We, you know, we couldn't do rights deals before because UK publishers typically say, you're joking, yeah. Yeah. well, would we be interested in some pathetic little Aussie <laughs> writer? So that's a big thing. And the other thing which, which I had hoped, and it's now turning out to be true, is um, we're able to benefit from the UK being the gateway to English reading Europe and beyond. So right. we have export markets available to us through London. Right. And now we're being exported literally around the world, not just through Europe, we're Middle East, Far East, Near East, and so on. You know, if you're an Australian publisher, your export market is New Zealand. Yes. Right? Congratulations. <laughs> you know, 5 or 10% of your market yeah. gets added on at New Zealand, and that's it. Mm. And that was one of the consequences for the way of the way the UK industry affected our industry. They denied us mm. not just 
access to good, better books than we'd have, but access to export markets. Yeah. So all of those things have started to happen. And as we're speaking at the moment, we, I happen to have a literal bestseller in the UK. It's on the Sunday right. Times bestseller list. Right. We've sold a lot of copies very quickly. Yeah. And it's, it's actually a pleasure uh, <laughs> at the moment to be a UK publisher. It hasn't yeah. always been so. And it's only right. been a bit over two years, so right. it can change quickly as well. And the UK market, is that different to Australia or is it similarities? Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting question. I'm still learning about it all the time. My my sense of it is that it's a, it's a tougher market than Australia's. Mm. It's very much driven by format and price. Right. Uh, it's very hard to publish fiction in the UK, for instance. Um, you know, they virtually insist that new fiction goes straight into B format at eight ninety nine, full stop, you know, good night nurse. Right. They don't care about anything else. Um, you can try publishing it in hardback. Uh, that's an alternative. Mm. They're not interested in trade paperback, which we oh, started right. doing. Yes, that's the larger format. Yeah, paper, yeah. yeah, we tried to publish fiction in trade right. paperback, no. and the bookseller said, no, we'll wait for the paperback. You know, <laughs> this is a fucking paperback, but no, you know. Yeah. Um, so that's very tough. The market itself, uh, interestingly, for the kind of books we were talking about earlier, serious fiction, serious yeah. non-fiction, is just as tough, if not tougher there, than it is here. And the subs, you know, the subscriptions from the trade and the yeah. print runs are as small or smaller. Hmm. So it's really very difficult. The, the one thing I will say, which is what we're experiencing at the moment with this book that's doing well, and we, yeah. we have had several that have done well, but not yeah. as well as this, yeah. is that if you do manage to, str to have a book which strikes a chord with readers, the numbers become much bigger than you can usually achieve in, in Australia, Australia. Right. because the population is three times Australia's size. Yes. And, of course, there's that, it's what European I was talking market. about, the yeah. English language yeah. hinterland yeah. as well. Yeah. So that's the big thing. It's, it's a market which more than, more than you probably even realise in Australia rewards volume enormously and punishes right. lack of volume enormously. <laughs> right. So it's a brutal winner-takes-all market, I would say. Yeah. So hard to, it's to crack, but when you do crack it, yeah. it can when you do really crack help. it, when you do crack it, you think, oh, how easy is this? <laughs> I'll yeah. do it again. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> but we know publishing's not like that. We do. We do know it's not like that. It's, a, that's it's right. an interesting business, mm. which is probably why we're still in, that's in true. the game. Mm. One of the things I go on about, I go on about quite a few things from time to time, but um, for all its... Um, vagaries and difficulties. The publishing industry, I and include writers and booksellers and all that in the same is probably our most successful cultural industry. It's one that um, mm. it actually makes money. It employs thousands mm. and thousands of people. Yeah. Um, yet it's had very little percentage-wise government support. Mm. What's What's your view? How important is have you had Australia Council support and government support, and how important has that been in yeah we, we your development yeah we have had australia Australia Council support over the years financially it's never been very significant, mm. but you know the numbers are small anyway, so every little bit helps yeah you know you get five thousand dollars towards an overseas book fair um you get you know tens of thousands of dollars for a whole publishing program for a year or for 18 months or whatever, that helps too. But, you know, it's it's a pittance 
and it's a fraction of what other uh, other governments do for their book publishing mm. industries. I mean, Canada is famous uh, for the 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 way it supports its mm. industry for very good reasons because they're mm. physically next door to America. Yes, yeah, it's a different. Uh, yeah, but we certainly have got some. It's it's been welcome, but it's not significant in terms of quantum. It's now in a state of flux because of changes that you know this government has made to the mm. allocation of money and the amount of money. So all that's very odd and difficult to cope with. Mm. Um, but I was going to say, Mark, with the industry itself, and I agree with you about the industry, um, one of the things which has really struck me everywhere, uh, but, but especially you know, when I think of our own company and our own staff, is it's incredible the dedication of the staff. Mm. And I'm sure you find this with book selling. You know, we, we have people who are so dedicated, you know, to what they do, so enthusiastic mm. and committed, and, you know, and I'm not saying anything out of school here, the money is not terrific. Mm. You know, the wages in publishing around the world, including mm. Australia, are relatively low. And mm. I, I suspect they're relatively low in book selling as well. Yes, yes. Mm. We've had people come to our company uh, from different industries or different parts of the industry, but particularly different industries, earning more money and very keen to come in to a book publishing company. Now, I've thought about this a lot because yeah. it's a strange thing. And I think it boils down to this phrase, which you don't see much these days, but it's called psychic income. You can't pay the bills with psychic income. <laughs> right. But what we're talking about is what matters to people as human beings. Mm. And if you're working in a company like ours, not just ours, but you're working in a company which is obviously all it's trying to do is publish good books, right? There's nothing mm. else we're trying to do. Mm. Well, what you see is what you get. So if you work in a company like that, you believe in what you do, you think you're doing something which contributes to the society as a whole, everything is straightforward and honest, there's no subterfuge, there's no lurks and perks, there's no corruption, there's no misdemeanours, mm. it's just... People working away in their various roles to get the best books they possibly can out to a readership. Now, that, that counts enormously in terms of job satisfaction, I think. Mm. That's the only explanation I can give it. Because, you know, as I said before, the salary they get for that kind of commitment is, you know, it's less than a teacher gets mm. first year out, mm. to be really blunt. Yeah. So, you know, you can ask the question, well, why not teach? <laughs> well, you know, there are lots of answers to that. But, and this is a phenomenon, as I've said, I've seen around the world. Mm. You know, the people I meet in publishing, and I'm, I'm not trying to be, you know, Pollyanna-ish about this, they're, they're wonderful people. You know, they're, they're very dedicated, they're very committed to books as, as an important signifier of a culture, right? I mean, I think book publishing, if you really want to know, I think it's just about the most altruistic business there is, apart from, say, a non-profit, you know, an NGO mm. just trying to do good works. But, but in, the, in the capitalist marketplace, where you're ostensibly trying to make a profit, book publishing is virtually an act of altruism. Yes, I, I would agree to some extent. But you do get large corporations like, say, Bertelsmann, oh, yeah. who own um, no, Penguin Random talk, House, of course, who, I, who I obviously... I'm talking from profit, my perspective. No, profit is a very big driver. But yeah. but having said that, I, you know, I know many of the people working for those companies and mm. 
and they share the same sorts of values they do. that, they do. that you're right. you and I do. That, That's um, right. Yeah, you're right. The big multinationals, of course, they're, they're huge beasts and mm. they're trying yeah. to extract as much money as they can. Mm. But that's right. The point you make is right. Mm. You know, you meet the people who work in them. They're terrific people. They're yeah. very capable, you know, and they're very dedicated. Yes. yes. It's a fascinating thing. Mm. There's a nice book, the name of which I, escapes me, about the book trade, and they refer to um, publishers and, and booksellers as reluctant capitalists, which... I think that's um, right. Which is quite it's a nice... That's uh, a good phrase. Nice sort of phrase. Mm. Um, so what are, you, what are your plans for, for Scribe? Oh. You, you and I both are... Uh, that's a shocking <laughs> question. <laughs> uh, yes, I'm about to... Am I allowed to say I'm about to turn... Yes, you can say. This month, I turn 68. Which I'm, I'm aware of that because it's a terrible thing. I'm to a year behind you. You're a year behind. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I set up Inscribe. Uh, I started publishing in the UK at exactly the time you meant to retire or think yes. about retiring when I was 65. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to keep on breaking those rules. I think. Right. Look, Mark. I don't. The truth is, I don't have any uh, clear plans in that area. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously aware of it as a very live issue. I think yeah. about it a lot. Um. At the moment, all I can say is while I feel I have uh, the energy to do it properly and while I feel as though I can do it mm. well, um, I will keep doing it if external circumstances don't stop me from doing it. I mean, you never know from one day to another no, what's no going to happen one, no to one you. Does no one does. No. But um, I suppose my ultimate aim, I, I, would, I would dearly love Scribe to be able to continue in one form or another, um, how that will develop, I don't know at the moment. No. <laughs> but if you have a clue about how to do this, no, well, I, well, I, well, I don't. I, I do, I do think. Um, just going back on your point before about the people who, our colleagues who work for us and work mm. with us, mm. um, just how much respect I have for them, and um, mm. I mean their dedication. It's as you say, they sort of take on. Mm. I'm constantly being told myself that I shouldn't do this or that yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, because yeah. it's not the reading's way. That's um, right. Interesting, isn't it? It is, and it, it's sort of that's very heartening. Um, mm. But I, I, you know, personally, I do worry. You know, psychic income is all very well, mm. but how mm. do um, yeah. people raise families? Yeah, and, exactly. Um, yeah, and do other things with mm. <laughs> with just mm. psychic in income. Mm. I think mm. it's something mm. we haven't quite cracked the, no. the nut for. Mm. Um, I think um, we probably have um, covered quite a lot of ground, really. I, I think you? so, and I think so? the good thing is you haven't asked me to prognosticate about the future. Which no, I, I do have a question about oh, that. Do you? But, um, I do. The question is, how do you see the future? Or is there any future? <laughs> Perhaps we should... Oh, are you talking about book publishing? Yeah. Oh, um, well... I think it's very hard to imagine a civilization in which books are not an intrinsic component, right? I mean, I, I often joke to people that the key signifiers of civilization are good coffee, good bread, and good books. Um, and, you know, I just can't imagine a civilization without any of those three things, mm. actually. We uh, probably wouldn't want to live on one. I would, no, I don't think you would want to. Now, I, I can imagine great threats to those things happening, mm. especially to books. You know, uh, 
you know, there are obviously a lot of worrying developments around the world. There are a lot of huge challenges uh, the world faces, and and books may become a kind of luxury that not many people can afford to indulge in. That is possible. Mm. That is imaginable. But look, ultimately, Mark, I suppose if you really pressed me, I'd say this gets back to, I suppose, your worldview or the way you understand human beings. Mm. I, I just think people have an incredibly powerful desire to communicate with one another. I just think it's part of being human. It doesn't have to take the form of the printed word, the written mm. word. You know, it can be music, it can be art of various kinds. Mm. You know, we, well, we can see it with the digital, you know, that's like right. Facebook you and see Twitter. It everything and, yeah. to do with social media. Yeah, I mean, that's what all. that's expressing, yeah. right? People do need to stay in touch with each other. Mm. And that seems to be an essential part of human nature. And if that's right, then I do think that books, in one form or another, are going to hang around. That's not saying anything about the shape or the nature of the industry, both on the publishing side and the book selling side. Mm. That might be subject to terrible pressures and might change in ways that neither of us are thrilled about. Mm. That is possible. Mm. But I suppose the other thing I also think, which feeds into it, is that uh, nothing beats quality. Mm. And quality is always valued and appreciated in in every circumstances bar an apocalypse, mm. right? So if readings, you know, continues to exercise excellent judgment, if it's, you know, authentic in everything it does, it will it will hang around, I think, in, in, a, in a decent form. And I would imagine the same thing of a company like ours, mm. not just ours, but no. the company. I would, I would imagine, I would hope that. Yeah. Beyond that, very hard to say mm. much. Yes, I'm personally, I'm sort of fairly optimistic, but mm. in a perhaps not a on a limited horizon. But it does seem to me that at the moment things feel a lot better than they did mm. five years ago. Yeah, we were full of gloom and doom. Yeah, I think that's um, true. It's just led me on to another thing. Mm. <laughs> we were. Um, one of the things about the communicating is this, the rise in self-publishing yeah, and the yeah. technology that now facilitates that. Yeah, yeah. Um, certainly, you know, readings as a, as a book retailer is inundated by people who've, who've gone on to Amazon Create Space or something mm, or mm, other you know, mm, and published this, mm, their book. Mm, um, and it's, it does obviously a huge business because otherwise mm, you know, those kinds of companies are changing hands for fortunes. Um, mm. Have you got any view on... Well, I've got perhaps an unpopular view of that. I, I'm sort of... I welcome the proliferation of self-publishing because then it means they don't come into my in-tray. <laughs> right. um, you know, the, the real... You know, the, the dirty little secret, trade publishing, is most of the submissions you get are crap. Right? They're really, really bad. Um, and a lot of what become self-published books are in that category. Not all of them, obviously not all of them, but a lot of them are. They, to take them on would need a huge commitment of editorial resources mm. for an uncertain outcome. And there's nothing that beats individual commitment. So I think if an author believes enough in their own work that they want to publish it themselves, you know, maybe pay a freelance editor to mm. edit it, you know, pay a designer to edit it, to design it professionally, that's that's a good thing. It actually doesn't hurt trade publishing at all. There'll always be some that got away, 
Yeah. But funnily enough, even there are even examples, some famous examples of books that started off being self-published, mm. which get snapped up by large publishing companies. Yes. And become even more successful. Yeah. Uh, Fifty Shades of Grey is a very good example of that. Yes. It's not the only one. There are many examples mm. of that. So, I mean, I, I do genuinely welcome it. You know, I wish mm. there was more self-publishing, not less. Right. <coughs> All right. Well, I think it, on that note, we should um, finish. And, and thank you, Henry. I've been talking with Henry Rosenblum, the founder and publisher at Scribe, one of Melbourne's greatest, indeed Australia's, indeed London's <laughs> greatest independent publishers. Thank but, you, Henry. Thanks very much, Mark. It's been a pleasure. Yeah.